Welcome to the Waterfowl Podcast. Today's lucky, um, we're so lucky to have the guest who's um, Pete Fry, Vancouver City. And uh, welcome, Pete. Thanks so much for joining the flock. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here with you. And you forgot to mention that we're both directors at the UBCM. That's right. Which is where we've got to know each other. That's uh, right. I met you the first time in July. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which was fun. It was great to see everybody in person. It really helps, I find. Like, I mean, I feel like I already know people because of these, like, video things that we're doing. But I remember when I met Ange and she's like, oh, we're meeting for the first time. And I'm like, yeah, it's true. This is, like... I guess I should be more reserved, but because we've had these like video things, I've, I just sort of jump into it and I become a little uh, close, right? You know, I, I really like you, Pete. I like what you're doing. I liked talking to you uh, in July Likewise. there. And, and, and I feel like... And just so you know, UBCM is very much like you experienced it. It is kind of fun and we let our hair down and we just hang out and it's an opportunity to kind of commiserate over our you know, our experiences in local government. And this is, so I've, I'm, I'm an appointee. So Vancouver has a guaranteed spot. So I've been on UBCM now. This is my third year as the Vancouver rep. So I've really gotten a, a real feel for how the, how the, the executive work. And it is really a, a great opportunity. And for me, I, I have to say, it's been super uh, illuminating and, and, and mind expanding for me as a, as a city guy, because, you know, Vancouver is to the rest of BC what, Toronto is to Vancouver you know they all kind of dump on us and everybody else like big city for a while they used to call me Hollywood because I was always on the news and everybody was like oh yeah look there's Pete on the news again doing this that and the other thing because we're Vancouver and we're the quote-unquote center of the universe in in British Columbia Um, so for me my experience on so I I love the fact that this is that's kind of the focus of our conversation today uh, because it's been really important and illuminating I'll never forget uh, Lorianne Rudenberg, uh, counselor from Quinnell, talking about, um, you know, like Quinnell was really struggling. They had to replace a bridge that washed out and it was a really big deal and it was going to cost them a million dollars. And I mean, you know, in Vancouver, we have a $1.5 billion budget, right? A million bucks is kind of, I don't want to say chump change, but it's like, you know, you couldn't buy a, you couldn't buy a detached lot in the city of Vancouver for a million dollars now. So, um, it, it was it was it was a real perspective for me, and it's like you know, and, and the struggles from smaller communities that deal with a lot of the stuff that we deal with, and it's even more impactful. We talk about the overdose crisis here in Vancouver, um, and it's a big deal, and we've and, and hundreds of deaths, but it's even more impactful in a small community, even when it might just be a couple of deaths, because those are people that everybody knows, mm-hmm. and it and it directly touches a town in a very different way. And uh, so I really, you know, I really love my experience on UBCM and it really does keep me in check. And it actually, you know, the funny thing is, is that council, I'm a huge advocate for our small communities across the province. And I'm working on a great side project that maybe I'll tell you towards the end of this. Oh, I love that because small (laughs) communities have small capacities, right? Like, I mean, all the small communities that I've been talking to is sort of like my small community hat for the UBCM. It's like, oh, I sure do wish we could pay for our fire department like that's tasis right you know but other places have a hard time recruiting for fire department like you mentioned the opioid you know like it's different when it's your neighbor who died alone who thinks that they weren't you know able to reach out right you know and i guess everybody's neighbors and in the city you know like but i mean i lived in toronto and i know how you don't talk on the elevators because you need to have some sort of like 
bubbles, right? Where this is mine and this is yours. And I, and I do see how, um, you know, 1.5 billion is so huge and crazy to the small chump change Sarah over here with like, oh, we have a $1 million flood project. We're so excited about thanks for the federal government for allowing it to happen, right? Because we wouldn't be able to do it otherwise, right? Like, but that means that the Fed gets to sort of decide the agenda for us. You know, we can only have to follow what they're granting. And that, you know, we like, I've been doing a lot of age friendly work in my town and uh, because my one of my first motions I tried to pass was like about like getting like an age um, uh, supported home um, more of that kind of thing and uh, you know because that was the thing that the feds were funding so we had like a $25,000 age friendly study and then we had a second one that was about transportation because we don't have any sky train lines or anything like that right it's all on the backs of people helping their neighbors the people who have cars try to help the people who don't have cars because there's no other way, right? There's no public infrastructure yeah. outside of roads, sewer, and water. And we're just hoping that we can get that hydrant, you know? <laughs> we're just like, oh, maybe if we pool our pennies together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I mean, we still have a lot of common struggles and yeah. like... You know, and I, I'm I'm really fortunate to live in a community in Vancouver that's uh, very small town feeling in my immediate neighborhood, yeah. uh, where everybody knows everybody and everybody says good morning and that kind of thing. It's very, very connected, and it's it, and a lot of communities in Vancouver aren't like that. Yeah. And we have, you know, we struggle. I grew up in Vancouver, and I remember when we were still, you know, when I was a kid, we were still very much a backwater kind of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, pre-expo and stuff. I mean, there used to be, I remember when they tore down all the mills around False Creek, there was mills and like, you know, log booms and stuff in False Creek and they tore all that out to build the Expo 86. And, you know, now that area is all glass condo, high-rise towers and stuff and it's been completely terraformed and added a significant amount of density. And I mean, when I was a teenager, people didn't really live downtown. There was old SRO type hotels for, you know, the, our legacy of like resource extraction workers who used to come into Vancouver to spend their money. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of those SRO type hotels, but there was no condos. There was warehouses, SROs, sex workers, party scenes, all that kind of stuff, but there was no condominiums. Now it's all condos and yeah. there's, you know, tens of thousands of people living down there, you know, enough to generate a whole new political riding. Yeah. So. Well, and it's like shifted, right? Like, so that means that the sex workers, the SROs, like they're they're looking for new purchase somewhere else, maybe, you know? Like, that's the thing yeah. about, like, I remember uh, when the Olympics came, because that's when I sort of first uh, moved to BC um, 10 years ago or so. And, you know, that was the thing. It was like, oh, well, we're having the Olympics. So everybody, here's a one-way ticket to Victoria, you know, get out, get out of Vancouver and get to somewhere else. Right. You know, and that was, there's a lot of pushback, right. You know, like the stolen land thing was, isn't new, right. It's, there's always, yeah, it's, it's always like, um, well, where are we supposed to go now? Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, we have, we are in an interesting age, for sure. I, I think, I mean, it was enough that, uh, you know, none of us could have contemplated a global pandemic, obviously, and that's been a huge challenge for local governments across the board, big or small. Uh, but, you know, also things like climate change, which, you know, I think you and I were more cognizant of, certainly as the green, this is 
been something we've been talking about for a long time. And, and um, what's interesting, though, is that UBCM, uh, from my understanding, 10 years ago, global warming was still like people were a bit on the fence. It's like, I don't know, that's like hockey stick analogy and all these kind of like, it's the, the science is still out. I don't think anybody in local government of British Columbia doubts climate change now. Uh, and everybody's on board for like, how do we solve it now? How do we solve it sort of preemptively by, you know, switching from fossil fuels and like a transition economy? Those are a little bit more complicated, but I think that we're now at a point where nobody denies the reality of climate change, which, you know, hopefully we'll see more sort of, I mean, I, I am heartened to see that there is more support at UBCM generally through the membership that are more acutely aware of this and, and it's it's you know from a kind of political science perspective it's very interesting to see how that's moving and mobilizing it is but it's also Not fast enough I, that, thank you I wanted to say that and I hate to always be the one that's like yeah but there's you know, miles to go before we rest, right? You know, and I and I do. Yeah. I hate to, uh, you know, like even in the UBCM meeting that we just met, uh, you know, we talked about Sea Island being at sea level, you know, and liquefaction, and we talked about how, like, okay, so what's the next plan for the airport 2.0, right? And also like the budget or the pension primer, right? You know, like there's the cold cold feet on the divestment right and the pension <laughs> primer there's a there's they're already sort of backpedaling on the divestment strategy which is you know and uh, gary pulled me aside and asked me what i thought of it and stuff and you know i get that it is complicated i had an interesting interaction that i shared with gary and i'll share with you um uh, my my colleague counselor adrian carr and i had a conversation with a german company that is um uh, they're blowing up in Europe and in the UK, and they've developed this technology where basically you can retrofit a lamppost, and and at you get you have this sort of smart socket system that sits in the trunk of your electric vehicle, and you pull it out, and you plug it into this socket that's retrofitted into the lamppost, and you can you can draw energy out of it, charge your electric vehicle, and has a metering wireless thing that kind of directly bills you through BC Hydro or whatever. So so it actually you know like that's how you can get electric vehicle infrastructure because it's expensive to install and, and that's a way for you to turn a parking lot into like or a parking totally. space right it, you know like it's, it's, it's a huge opportunity mm-hmm. but then but as it turns out this this company that started in germany has been bought hook line and sinker by royal dutch shell Duh. <laughs> and so shell shell is aggressively moving into renewables and electrification of, of vehicles yeah. and so are other fossil fuel companies so when we talk about divesting from fossil fuel companies while they're meanwhile investing in renewables yeah. what does that actually look like and how do we like so there has to be i think there's that and I, and I think this is where gary's point came in it's like divestment in and of itself is a kind of a blunt tool that maybe needs to be more finessed and nuanced so how do we say all right, well, we're going to divest from the fossil fuel part, but we're happy to invest in your electrification and renewables and like supporting EV vehicles and that kind of thing and transition economy. Yeah. We're with you on that, but uh, not enough. And I'm but I'm that, not qualified to say what the solution is there. It'll be an interesting conversation at UBCM, though. I'm definitely not qualified at many things, but I do not let that stop me. And I feel like um, the the whole divestment thing, you know, like you can't serve two masters. You can't have the pensions come 
like be fruitful and like in the black, not in the red, you know, especially with like, again, the aging sort of a work population, right? You know, and how, and we've seen that with the pandemic a lot, calling back retired nurses and stuff like that. But you can't be green and be profitable, right? Like, and that's the sort of like, you have to choose which one you really think is like the way forward. And I mean, I know that on the electric battery front, there's a lot of like mining concerns and, you know, like again, making the people who are like going to be the sort of climate refugees being the ones who bear that brunt. But also, you know, I understand how we're kind of committed. Like it wasn't until I came here to London that I saw my first Tesla charging station because we don't have those kinds of things where I live in rural BC, right? You know, and we'll be the last to get on board, right? Like every climate caucus meeting that I'm at talks about like uh, zero people left behind. And I, the last guest that I had uh, was Natasha from Inuvik. And she was like, yeah, we have to make all of our electricity from natural gas. We're in the Arctic. We're sitting on the reserve, right? You know, and yeah, we want to move towards like, you know, wind, but it took them 10 years to get a, a wind project up there because of the bureaucratic red tape, because that that's what's involved, right? And me and her have this similar uh, feeling that we need diesel generators. We can't, like, I sometimes go to Environment Committee, UBCM, on the, the 1950s diesel generator that the village has from, you know, a better day. And because our power to the grid is broken, right? You know, for whatever reason. And I feel like, uh, you know, it's like you're saying with the um, the SROs too, where the community sort of character is sometimes not the 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 tourists who come to visit and you know have the Instagram worthy stuff. It's it's the um, it's the ones who clean up the messes or the ones who are like there to make or, or the ones who make the messes. You know, like the ones who sort of like are yep. consistently always there, right? You know, and. It's, well, it's, it's it, you know, I mean, there's, uh, it's one of the things that I've definitely been learning, you know, like you in my first term elected, and, 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 and you do run across a lot of these sort of paradoxes, and, and just the paradoxical nature of, of trying to meet all these different competing needs, and this person wants this, and that person, I was reading uh, over the weekend about, you know, again, sort of climate change, and and what we need to do to get off fossil fuels, and the elephant in the room being that we um, that we don't do nukes, and n- nuclear power is the cleanest possibility if we're if we're being serious about it. And I, you know, and it kind of called out some of the past kind of activism. And I'm, you know, old enough to I was marching for anti nuke marches, and, and you know, um, not just and nuclear Chuka. war. Yeah, like, like not just about nuclear war or nuclear testing, but actually like nuclear power, power. Mm-hmm. And, and uranium mining and stuff. And it's interesting to, to contemplate that, uh, and I didn't realize this, but that in fact a lot of the anti-nukes activism of the 1970s was financed by the fossil fuel industry. That makes sense. Which is like, you know, mm-hmm. totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Didn't know it at the time, and certainly as we kind of like, but it's, again, it's that sort of paradoxical kind of nature it's like we certainly didn't anticipate a fossil fuel climate you know generating climate climate change catastrophe that we're now experiencing and that you know people that young people that were my age when i was marching against nukes are now marching 
uh, for climate change. Yeah, and and it's just as the Extinction Rebellion exists, continues, you know, Aluta Continua, like it's not, and, and this is the thing, like I am in Ontario, there are nuclear power plants here. There's nuclear power plants right on the greatest freshwater resource in the world, right? You know, so there's a lot of like, oh, six of one, half dozen of another and measuring because like I consider myself still anti-nuclear because I have seen uh, in the Lanark Highlands you know, outside of Ottawa where they are harvesting uranium and, you know, like what what is left after the mining, but also the sort of long-term consequence. Like I've been to Nevada too, right? You know, where they bury some of the, the waste. And, and I feel, um, I feel we need to really get our priorities in order with, with, with what we have, right? You know, like, yes, I understand that nuclear power is carbon free, but it's not, um, you know, danger free, right? You know, like maybe where wind and solar and those sorts of investment where we really need to be doubling down, you know, and we need to be like, uh, accelerating the, or D, D, like making it less red tape, right? Like yep. Tassis is one of the windiest places in the world, but we'll probably be the last ones to get a wind turbine, you know, because it's, it'll have to come on a boat. It can't come on the road too twisty and turny, you know, it, it can't be manufactured there. There's no manufacturing there anymore. But like you said before, when Vancouver used to sort of be like log booms and, you know, and then it got changed into condos the people who were coming there, like there used to be a daily flight from Tassas to Vancouver because the value of timber exported built Vancouver, right? You know, like from the Nooka Sound region. And, you know, I've heard it said in some of the groups that I'm a part of, like on this trail society to the Zabalas, the next town over in Tassas, is that all of our resources have been extracted now. We have nothing left. We only have an empty cup. And, you know, I really feel that is... You know, that's in Ontario, they tend to fill the mines with water and call them lakes. Right. You know, and and even in Toronto, like has an instance where they were going to make a deal with the Adams mine, which is some kind of mine, maybe not nuclear, um, maybe metals, nickel or something. And they were going to have that be their landfill. But then um, the company that was going to operate that mine landfill was like, fine, but if it uh, makes the water around it contaminated, it's not only our company's name on the legal, you know, uh, responsibility list, it's also City of Toronto and the city wouldn't do that. So guess where the garbage comes from? Toronto, right here to farmland in London, two hours down the road. And, you know, like that's the thing about displacing, you know, I get to live better so that other people don't have to. And that's to me brings up like, this whole site C thing too, right? You know, it's not always about nuclear. That's just hydro, right? That's just yep. regular water. And, but we don't really invest in a lot of micro projects. We only want the massive, you know, super, super tankers, super, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the micro projects, I mean, good on paper, practically speaking, like how do you sustain you know, a population the size of Southern Ontario, for instance, you can't do it with micro projects, no. you know, or nor would you, you know, like, I mean, I think the, my understanding is the shift towards nuclear in, in Southern Ontario was as an antidote to coal, oh, yeah. which was creating acid rain throughout the region, right? Mm-hmm. The Great Lakes region is, was, was struggling with acid rain. It was 
You've got to wipe out that ecosystem. That was my first, you know, like when I was a younger and you talk about being anti-nuclear when you were younger, it was acid rain that got me on the environmental train at the very beginning of my, you know, teenage years. And it, it's evolved a lot over the years to be more accepting of things that I thought I was against. Right. You know, but I, I guess I just have a lot of, you know, I, August as we're in is, you know, Chernobyl, you know, like there's, there's all sorts of like these sort of, um, Places that still, or Fukushima, that haven't really rebounded from that kind of radioactive footprint, right? And we have no idea. Like, these these are the things that's like, we don't know what we don't study. And that's something that I've really gotten, like, a lot of education about in the last three years is that, okay, how can I learn to measure things better, right? You know, And, and you're right. Uh, micro projects don't really work well but if every house had solar panels and every house had you know a wind turbine then we would be taking everything that we are able to take right from where we are right you know and then that would not make so much need I suppose for those sort of bigger projects that you know if, if we nickel and dime our way we get to a dollar right you know and I really want to see some kind of like because I see a lot of times it's just like, oh, well, it's it's our individual, like, I can compost and you can compost, but unless it's like sort of an industrial thing, it won't make a difference, right? And I, and I think that I want people, individuals to feel like they can do something. And I also want to feel like there's a collective, like, mass, you know, critical mass of things being done on the sort of for our best interests, right? Which are, are debatable, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and it comes down to, you know, some core fundamentals that I think nobody really wants to grapple with. And that's like, you know, uh, growth-driven capitalism is just not sustainable. Yeah. Right? And it and it's, 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 it's going to kill us sooner or later. Pick your poison. So, I mean, really, at the end of the day, um, I mean, and it sounds like a kind of Luddite kind of approach, but really we need to kind of, decouple ourselves from from this marriage to capitalism and and what it brings and and i'll be the first to admit i'm not ready to do that because you know you know like who's gonna go first yeah. <laughs> like where do, how do how do we get to that right <laughs> totally i i love that you know it's no one wants to be the first right you know no one wants to be the like um and In a way, I've been divorced from capitalism for a long time because I'm kind of broke and poor. But, like, I also recognize that, like, I would like to be able to take my kids to the dentist. Like, there's, like, ways that I want things to continue, right? So, like, you know, I'm less um, a Luddite than I thought I was, I suppose, you know, and I'm and willing... I would say dental care is not like a capitalist. I mean, it is a good part of the capitalist you pay for construct, it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, but we shouldn't be. I mean, that should be like at a bare minimum, the sort of you know the social safety net kind of uh, healthcare. Well, and that makes me think about but... it. Makes me think about what you said when we met in July. Is that like it's like a meat grinder, right? You know, the capitalism is sort of this meat grinder, and we have to like. No one wants to go first in the meat grinder, but whether we can debate about who's going to go first. It reminds me of that climate change um, sculpture of like all the politicians talking, but it's underwater. Have you seen that? And I just feel like 
Um, you know, I tend to be somebody who goes first and then pays the price for it, but I recognize, like, I mean, only by having the pandemic did small town, you know, underserved places like Tassis become, we can sell that now. We can sell the fact that we don't have too many people in our schools and we're able to continue Careful. going to school. Well, there's always, there, what you wish for. there's yeah. always, there goes the neighborhood, you know, like that's, that's the feeling that I'm continuously like talking to people about because we need to, like, I think that we have to adapt or perish, thrive, you know, like move forward. I don't think we can debate about climate change anymore. We're underwater. And I don't think that we can, and you're right, pick your poison. Like, I guess that makes, <clears throat> that makes me want to take the poison that seems like I might be able to mutate, right? You know, I might be able to like uh, become that nuclear third eye fish in The Simpsons, right? You know, and I might be able to like evolve into the next stage of what we're going to become. But, you know, I I hope that I go into the meat grinder before my kids do, right? Like that's the sort of like climate. That's why... Um, that's why people want to reduce the voting age to 16, you know? That's why, because it's the people who are the ones that are going to be left here after we're, we have pensions, after we don't have pensions, after whatever, right? You know, after we're, you know, dust, then what will life be like for them, right? Like, I, I want to be hopeful, but it feels like a fool's errand. Yeah, it's yeah. sad. Sad, uh, so I, sad. I, I, I do worry about... You know, I don't have kids, but I have nieces and nephews and stuff. And I, yeah. and I have lots of friends who are kids, and I do worry about their future. Yeah. Well, and, what does and that look like? it's not what about they, my personal kids, like? right? Like it's about humanity as we know it, or life continuing. You know, like I, I don't feel like it's my personal kids that need to survive. I feel like it's everyone's, like you know. Yeah, every, the ones that we are going to be remembered by, right? You know, and that's where, you know, that's where it's, it's really hard because it's a lot of grief, right? There's a lot of grief involved in the things that I, coming here to visit my family, um, I think a lot about, like, I wish I could give my kids the life that my parents gave me, but I don't have a unionized job. I don't have pension, you know, like, and so there's no ability for me to get up to that level you know like we just learn to live with less and that's another way to survive yeah yeah uh, so how how do you think <clears throat> it will go for you tomorrow right like i mean i try to take things day by day now because sometimes looking too far in advance you know it's it's very sad. So I just try to think, how can I make a little joy today? Or, you know, what what am I going to do that's going to make me feel like less beaten down by the world? You know, every day for me, I mean, I what I've realized through this job is I could keep myself busy with lots of things. There is no shortage of things. It's, you know, we're a city of almost 700,000 people. That is in, uh, I think, a, has a variety of crises playing out. Everything from like, you know, like, oh, 
I don't know, you name it, right? I mean, we have obviously the, the big ones like homelessness and the overdose crisis, but the, the cost of housing, job insecurity, people who want uh, more people wearing masks, people who are anti-maskers. Um, you know, how does the hotel industry recover after it's been decimated by this pandemic? How do we avoid um, like an explosion of short-term rentals, Airbnbs that could dominate our market and force our fragile uh, renter vacancy rates um, into into the negatives? Like, I mean, those are real kind of issues. And then a lot of what's come out of the, the, the pandemic is this sort of... Um, you know, decimation of some of our retail sectors, like our street level kind of stuff. Streets don't feel as safe anymore. Kind of negative behaviors have have kind of come to the surface in ways that we haven't seen. It's it's a bit uh, um, challenging for folks to, to navigate. And as as systems come back online, what does that look like? Where are these pockets that aren't really quite recovering the same way? There's just no shortage of things. Taxes are through the roof for small businesses here in the in the city. That's not sustainable. That's funny. I hear from people all the time who talk about how they're they're you know selling their house in Vancouver or their their condo in Vancouver and making a ton of money and moving to small communities where they're now pricing out the locals. Mm-hmm. So you know that's what I meant when I said be careful what you wish for because no, we're seeing that happen. It's and, I bet you are. Yeah. yeah, and we're we're also seeing a lot of people who are like. I've been living here for this long, you know, I retired from the mill 20 years ago and I want to stay here, but I can't because, you know, I can't pay my taxes or whatever, right? You know, so, and we've had to increase our taxes just so that we could, um, it wasn't, it wasn't taxes as much as it was utility fees because we were operating in the deficit for those. So it was like... You want the water to keep getting there, which means you have to invest in the pipes, right? You know, but you have to have juice for that, right? You know, and it, if you had told me um, when I put my name on the ballot that I was going to be the tax man, you know, and I was going to be the one that was like, yay, higher taxes, you know, like I would have been surprised. But yeah. here, here I am making these arguments because I see we can't keep going with our, you know, head in the sand, you know, and that's sort of. Yeah, we had the, you know, the, the we inherited a real mess from the previous government who quite deliberately underinvested in um, infrastructure replacement. You know, Vancouver's a little over 100 years old. We have a ton of decrepit old infrastructure like water mains and sewer. We're, we're you know, trying to split our, our uh, sanitary and, and storm drains. You know, and these things cost money. Mm-hmm. And we didn't invest them in, in them at all. And the standard metric is to replace about 1% a year. And we weren't even doing half a percent. So we have a, a lot of catching up to do. Um, and that means more taxes. The last government had the luxury of like not investing in that, doing some sexy side projects, and then keeping taxes low. Mm-hmm. And now we're the ones who've inherited this mess. And we're like, eh, hey, guess what, everybody? We gotta, we've got to keep the taxes up because we have to do this infrastructure replacement. We really don't have a choice. Because failure is not an option. Right. You know, because at the end of the day, no, no. And it can, you know, you can only kick the can down the road for so long before, you know, it comes back at you. Right. You know, and, and, and New York is the same. They have lots of bridges that are crumbling. Montreal is the same. They have lots of bridges that are crumbling. Toronto, you know, like the dawn falls down on people when they go under it, you know, and. And it's only going to get worse with climate change. Like we know that these already fragile infrastructure pieces that are in need for replacement are 
going to be subsumed by climate change. This is part of our, you know, challenge with the storm and sanitary sewer replacements is that, like, you know, we're, we're seeing them back up with, with storm surges and stuff already. And as sea level rise hits us, we're going to be in a real, real pickle. Yeah. You know, we see, like, you know, we need to do major investments in our metro Vancouver region for our, you know, um, our, 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 our treatment plants. And so we have, we still have one primary treatment plant down at Iona Island. The rest are secondary. We have one tertiary coming online. We need to move everything to tertiary because at the end of the day, all this fast fashion. Basket. Yeah, it's... Well, plus we're just, we're just shooting contaminants into, into the Salish Sea, which mm-hmm. is obviously not sustainable. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming up on, on, on that that we need to really grapple with. Um, interesting piece that I'll be working on and that'll be coming forward hopefully to UBCM. Maybe something of less of interest to you on your coast, but on the on the Salish seaside, one of the things that we've discovered is that um, you know British Columbia mandated that um, all the cruise ships need to um, use scrubbers when the exhaust right. So that when the exhaust comes out, they scrub them and they remove all the you know the particulates and sulfurs and all those kind of things. Well, so the scrubbers, then they put them, it gets contained into a, into a ballast. They dump that ballast into the Salish Sea. So we're acidifying the Salish Sea. We're causing contamination that may likely be causing cancers and orcas and mutations and self shellfish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we are the only ones on the coast that are doing this because California has mandated they use more expensive marine gasoline. Washington and Alaska have said you can't dump your your scrubber condensate into into the into the coastal waters but british columbia inexplicably has kind of missed the boat on that one no yeah. pun intended and and, and, and and we need to step it up because obviously we're seeing our, our shellfish fishery collapsing our, our salmon fishery collapsing and these things are, are not are they they are very much related so mm-hmm. well and that's interesting that you say that because like Victoria just got their water waste treatment plant, but Tassos has had two, you know, and we don't have a lot of population and we're trying to deactivate one of them. And, you know, we are a salmon fishing capital, you know, like people, when I worked in, in a fishing lodge a few years back, um, someone had come from France every year for 30 years to go fly fishing in Tassos, right? You know, and he'd seen our town really change from like a booming industrial place to a place where people quietly retire and just you know go fishing and can their fish and it's really like a homespun thing but you know I love that you're saying about um Alaska and and California because BC is a the best place in the world and also you know world-class spill response is one of the things that like we we got a coast guard station in Tassis because of that but Still, 50 years ago, there was a, a boat that sank that was leaking diesel from 50 years ago. And so, but that's not DFO or, you know, it's, it's all the ministries and like their jurisdiction, right? So it's like Department of Transport, which, you know, it's it was all uh, international people who came from elsewhere to our area to deal with this because no one locally had the boats, the skills, the, you know, know-how. And so it was all people who were working on the the Gulf spill um, in New Orleans, right? You know, and the, those sort of people who are like specialized in that kind of work. And, but still it's 
too deep to salvage, right? You know, and it's it's not really um, been our habit to clean up after ourselves, right? So that's where we need to have a culture shift. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Pete. I know that you've hey, got other things I, to do. I, I do got to get rolling, but before I go, I do want to tell you about my really neat little side project. So this is a definitely off the side of my desk. And uh, when I was a kid, um, so the, the P&E, which is the Pacific National Exhibition, which is, you know, I've gone there for years. And it's always, to me, been like the province's fair. I always loved going there and the fact that you could tell that people were coming from all over the province, like people in cowboy hats and stuff, people, you know, young people coming down with their 4-H animals and all this kind of stuff. And it was really like a provincial fair. Loved it for that. And one of the highlights of that for me, visiting the fair, was visiting uh, the Challenger Relief Map. The Challenger Relief Map was uh, a giant to scale map of British Columbia, about 6,000 square feet. The thing was humongous. They had this giant gantry crane that would take people over top of it, and tour guides would point out all the little towns and municipalities and highlights and features of, of British Columbia. It was built by a dad and his kids in their workshop out of close to a million pieces of jigsaw cut quarter inch dug fir plywood that they glued, painted, and assembled into this giant 6,000 6, square foot two scale map of British Columbia. The thing is amazing. It, it is amazing. Um, anyway, it turns out that uh, it's been in storage. It got the, the PE building was knocked down in 1997 uh, and it went into storage for ever since and it's been in a hangar at Air Canada and this was a beloved BC institution it was visited by millions of British Columbians and inspired young people like me at the, the magnificence and grandeur and scale of our province and the fact that it was built by a family just was like the coolest thing in the world to me been working with the family been working with the PE, and we're, we're trying to bring back this map bring it out of storage restore it and really bring it back for all of British Columbia because there's a real opportunity to now highlight some of the things that we have a little bit more understanding about, like reconciliation and like the first peoples on this land, what would climate change look like, uh, do some more kind of interactive slideshow, computer-generated stuff that, because this is this is generated, this is built by hand. I mean, it's an amazing feat of, of surveying and expertise and engineering know-how. Uh, I, I should add, this was built all in the 1950s. It's really, it's really quite something. And um, so working on this kind of opportunity to bring it back, we have some big news coming in the next couple of weeks and um, pretty excited about that as a total off the side of my desk kind of project, but working with British Columbians who are also really passionate about this and we're inspired by it. It's really quite something. Uh, look it up online. I will. I'm going to check it out. I've never been to the PE, but in Ontario, we have the Western Fair, right? So it's so right. funny that... You know, the, the ways that me going to the Western Fair and then me moving to the West, the wildest, farthest West you could possibly get in Canada, you know, and how I would love for my kids to bring their 4-H chickens to the Peony one day, you know, because I, my partner is from BC, born and bred. And oh, yeah, well, you might, you might recognize the Challenger map. Yeah, well, and I just love that it's a homemade thing that people made. For me, that was the biggest, the biggest inspiration. I was like, why can't my family be doing something so cool, right? I mean, there was a little <laughs> bit of jealousy for sure. Just to think that a family made it. But the thing is so magnificently huge when, when you actually see it in person. It's a bit mind-blowing to think that, because 
George Challenger, the guy who built it, the, the now deceased grandfather, he was a surveyor. So he quite literally traveled across British Columbia and, and, and had a deep understanding of this kind of thing. But when you see it in a, in a physical manifestation in the depth of these sort of, you know, gorges and fjords and mountains and like a place like Tassis, for instance, when you see it on something like this, would be like, <laughs> what? And people live there, what? Yeah. I think there's so many opportunities to, to really kind of make something great out of this. So it's only going to cost us money and we got to kind of hit up the private sector and try and find the, the resources to do it. But there's a huge will behind it. And, and a digitization of it, right? You know, so that it could be experienced from places that are like Tassis, right? You know, like, and I feel yeah. like, I feel like the, um, it's only a surveyor who would be able to do that, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I like to say that, oh, I want to be in the family that does the cool things too. But I also know that it's like about, you do the things that you're able to, like the things that you're, you know, like sure. that you have the background for. And and, yeah. and the idea of like having, um, you know, this huge project, like there was somebody who, um, who was a principal in our school and him and his kids made this project that was about measuring the water in the Tassis River. So taking cardboard and making like the representation of the water. And I feel like, wow, like I never would have thought to do that, but you use what you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Gotta love it. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to check it out. George Challenger. Cool. At the Challenger Relief Map of BC. So literally on the side of my desk, I'm building a website for it right now so we can do this big announcement coming up and like, you know, many hands. Yeah. Just trying to move things forward and uh, it's good though. It's yeah. Good. I love the work that's, you do, Pete. Thank you so much for doing it. what I did in former it. life, by the way, graphic artist, web developer. Oh, Who really? That I would end up in, oh yeah. Well, I'm sure that would be a whole other... Maybe that's a subject for another... That would be a whole other show. The many lives of Pete Fry, because I could go there too, you know? I feel like I... It took a long way to get where I am now, right? And Totally. My punk rock nickname was Pass Out Pete. So you do the math. (laughs) 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 I mean, that was was many years ago, and then I was Pete Digiboy, and I was, like, doing all the independent graphics and kick posters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and now you're Hollywood. Now I'm Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're so great. I just, you know. Likewise, I'm... Sarah. It's super fun to hang out. Yeah, take it easy, buddy. Have a good day. All right. Ciao. Bye. Bye. So that was Pete Fry, uh, Punk Rock Pete, Digiboy, and uh, Hollywood. I'm so pleased that he was able to be a guest on our Waterfowl podcast. And, you know, that is... Check it out. The Challenger Relief Map. Uh, when you can see it, I can't wait to one day, you know, uh, be in awe of the scale representation of the province of British Columbia. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.